And if you please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, we'll be looking at chapters 4 and 5. And if you're using your pew Bible, that's found on page 1030. So we're taking a little bit of a break from Isaiah. Lord willing, we'll be back uh, looking at Isaiah next week. But I wanted to, to look at this specific, specific vision of Jesus. Because it shows us Jesus that we don't naturally think about and we don't naturally uh, see in the Gospels. But I think it's something that we really need uh, to give us encouragement. I know it, I needed it to give me encouragement this week. So our sermon will be focusing particularly on chapter 5, but we'll be looking at chapter 4 as well. But before we look at this chapter, I want to just give you a little background. We, we looked at Revelation, I think three years ago we studied it, and we went through it in, in, in quite detail. But just a couple of things we need to know. First of all, Revelation is a highly symbolic book. So we need to understand, as we're looking at it, that these... That, that these symbols need to be interpreted a particular way. And as we go through this, I will uh, explain the interpretation of these symbols as we go through it. But even before that, we need to understand the situation of the original recipients of this letter. Uh, This letter was written by the Apostle John. Uh, This is the last New Testament letter that we have. It was written around uh, the end of uh, the first century, around 90 AD or so. And this was a, a time of persecution. John was the last living apostle. All the other apostles had been had been brutally martyred at this point. And even John was uh, uh, attempted to be martyred. Uh, tradition tells us that John was boiled in oil and, and still lived. So John was exiled to the island of Patmos. This was a, a prison island. And he was, he was in his mid-90s at this time. And this was, a, um, this was an island of hard labor. And this is, this is where he received this, this letter. Um, the church, Christianity, was illegal. The Romans at this time required worship of the Roman emperor. And this Christians could not do. Christ alone was Lord. But if they wouldn't worship the emperor, they had to get a a little certificate called a libellus. And if they didn't have it, the Christians could be killed. This was what was going on. In the first three chapters of this book of Revelation, it consists of of short letters that were written to seven first century churches. And these churches are the churches of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamon and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And these letters don't really paint a a pretty picture of these churches. The faithful ones of these churches, they were brutally persecuted. But the majority of the churches compromised in in some manner. They either neglected evangelism, they they were heretical, both in their practice and in their theology. They refused to practice uh, church discipline, uh, both for sexually immoral and, and for heretics. They were hypocritical, they were appearing to be alive when they were really spiritually dead. They were lukewarm. They, they really didn't get excited about the things of the Lord. They, just were, they were just lukewarm about them. And it was really a difficult time for the church because they faced both external and internal threats. My friends, look around today. Is it any different? Is it any different for the church today? We may not face violent persecution, at least not here, not yet. But our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world certainly do. Places like India or places like China or places like North Korea or places that are under the, the dominion of radical Islam. What we are doing right now could, be, could bring us death. Having in our possession in some places, scripture could bring death. But even here, we may not be seeing the hostility to biblical Christianity. We may not be imprisoned. We may not be killed. But if we do stand up for the lives of the unborn, if we stand up for biblical sexual morality, we will be marginalized. We will be vilified. Again, we may not be persecuted, but we will pay a price, even today, even in our country. 
And the modern Christian church isn't in any better condition than it was then. Even strong churches, even the strongest churches around us show signs of being heretical and signs of being hypocritical. We fail to practice church discipline. We love the world rather than love God. We care more about what the world thinks about us than what God thinks about us. We're falling, we, we, we fail to, to love even our brothers and sisters in Christ, much less love the, the alien and the sojourner, or maybe our enemy. We too are lukewarm. And it is a, a dismal picture. And it's one that really leaves us disheartened, it leaves us discouraged, it leaves us despairing, disparaging, it leaves us confused. And, and not just as a church, I could say that me personally, this description is me personally. Uh, personally hypocritical and and uh, and more in love with the world than love with Christ and, and I would guess many of us fall in the same same situation and this is the point where the church is when John is given this vision this is the point where we are when we are given this vision and this is a beautiful awe-inspiring vision this vision of the throne room of heaven and this vision is <clears throat> completely different than anything any of us have ever experienced. It's completely foreign, as it should be. It's, we're talking about the, the throne room of heaven. And really, the only way John can, can communicate is using these symbols, because our minds really cannot comprehend the reality. If John told us exactly what it was like, we would, we would not be able to understand. So we have to be told in these, these uh, symbols and this uh, apocalyptic vision. And it's clear as we read this account that even John can't find words to describe what he sees. It's so beyond even the apostle as he's seeing this vision. He can't, he can't write down what he's seeing. And I think it's impossible for us to have an encounter with the living triune God and not be changed. I think it's impossible when we see this ultimate reality of the, of the holy and, and the omnipotent God of the universe, sitting on his heavenly throne, surrounded by the, the heavenly hosts, as, as we heard read in, in Revelation chapter 4. It's, it's impossible not to have this vision completely reorient us, completely change our outlook, our outlook on everything. See, it takes away our fear. It takes away our discouragement. It takes away our confusion. And it fills us with awe. Awe of the Almighty God sitting on his throne. It fills us with confidence. Confidence that he is completely in control of every situation. When we are out of control, he is in control. And ultimately, this brings us to worship. So here now, the description of the Lamb. The Lamb who is worthy, who is seated in the, on the throne, in the throne room of heaven. So it's chapter 5 of Revelation. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne 
And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. Lord, this vision overwhelms us. This is our God. This is our Savior. This is Christ. Lord, I pray that you will anoint my feeble words. And I pray, Lord, that you will open our minds just to get a glimpse of the majesty of our King to get a glimpse of this throne room, which is the current reality. Everything that we see is just the shadow lands. That is the reality. And Lord, we belong to that lamb. That lamb was slain for us. And because of that, that is our reality. So Father, I pray as we are going through this, Lord, that you will take us out of whatever situation that we are going through. Each one of us, I know in this fallen world, we we have... Trials and and pains that we are going through. Lord, take us out of that for a moment and let us be in this throne room and experience this truth, this current reality. And Father, we pray that we will praise you, we will worship you, and you will be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, take a look at chapter 4 that Hal read for us. This gives us the setting. This is the magnificent vision of the throne room of heaven. It describes the glory, it describes the splendor, it describes the power of the one who is seated on the throne. He's a sovereign one. He he is sovereign over his church. He is sovereign over his people. He is sovereign over every single square inch of creation. And he's holy. He is holy, holy, holy. That is holiness to the supreme degree. He's a God of justice. He is a God of wrath, as symbolized by the lightning and the rumbling and the peals of thunder that we see in chapter 4. But he's also a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. And this is symbolized by the rainbow. Remember that that beautiful sign that was given to Noah in Genesis of God's covenant never to destroy the earth again because of man's sin, but rather to provide a way of hope, to provide a way of redemption? And this display of God's majesty and, and justice and mercy and holiness and power, this drives the heavenly host to worship. My friends, there is no other reaction that is possible as we see this, other than falling down on our faces and worshiping the Lord. And this is how it should be. Then chapter 5 introduces tension into the setting. See, chapter 4 describes the scene. Chapter 4 sets the stage for us, for this cosmic drama. Then chapter 5 
plays out the drama taking place in this throne room of heaven. And the chapter starts with this mysterious scroll on the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And notice that John only refers to God indirectly. See, just as John only gives an an indirect description of him, and, and always by way of comparison. He doesn't directly describe the one on the throne. See, even in a vision, even in an apocalyptic vision, God is far too holy to be described and depicted directly with a scroll. This scroll is a royal decree. It is a proclamation. It is a command coming from the throne, coming from the king of all creation. And the scroll is in the right hand. Now, obviously, God does not have a body like we do. He doesn't have hands. But in the the symbolism here, the right hand symbolizes power. The scroll is in his right hand. This conveys that the scroll carries the full power, the full authority of the one who sits on the throne. And the scroll is written on the front and on the back, and it's sealed with seven seals. And what this conveys is the scroll is complete. It's full. If you remember when we studied Revelation three years ago, we talked number seven, we we see frequently. Seven is the fullness, the number of completion, the number of perfection. And the seven seals denote that this is the ultimate, this is the final, this is the perfect, this is the full royal decree. Now seals on, on ancient documents, they had two functions. First, the seal was to attest to the authenticity of the document. See, only the king had a signet ring. What he would do is he would take that signet ring, they pour some wax on the scroll, and he put the impression of that ring on there. And only he had the ring. So this was indicating that this came from the king. It was authorized by the king. It carried his weight. It carried his authority. The second purpose of the scroll was to secure the, context, the, the contents of the scroll. See, the royal decree could not be read unless you broke the scroll. Now, this was not permitted under penalty of death by anyone other than the king. So, for example, if the king was giving orders to a general, he would, he would seal it and he would give it to a messenger. And if the general found that it was open, he would kill the messenger. It could only be opened by the one to whom it was given, the one who has the authority to execute the decree. Now, the question, the question raised in verse 2 by the angel is, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And the angel is asking the question, who is authorized? Who is authorized to execute this divine decree that's contained in the scroll? Who is worthy to execute God's divine plan for the universe? And here's where we see tension in the vision. Because no one is found worthy. Not in heaven, that is among the angels, the heavenly host. Not on earth, among living people. Not under the earth, among those who have died. No one. No one is found worthy. So we have a dilemma. Will God's ultimate sevenfold decree be frustrated? Will God's plan fail? And the prospect of this, the prospect that no one is found worthy to execute this decree, this causes John much sorrow. We're told that, that, that John begins to weep loudly. See, this is more than he can, can bear. See, John can handle persecution. He can handle imprisonment. He can handle torture. He can handle being boiled in oil and being cast off on this, on this island in, in prison or in martyrdom. But this, this he cannot handle. This, that, this, that, that no one is found worthy. This is the ultimate tragedy to think that God's plan can somehow be frustrated. And I think here in John we see a really good example for the person of God, a clear indication of a person of God. See, the man or woman of God 
cares more for God's glory than he cares for anything else. He cares more for God's glory than he cares for his own comfort or his own circumstances. See, he weeps when God is dishonored. He weeps when God looks bad. So this is what causes the, the godly man inner toil. It's not his own outward situation. He trusts God for that. He knows that all things work together for good. So if he's, if he's suffering, if he's going through personal trials, he trusts God. He knows God is sovereign. God is working all those trials out for his good. But this, if God is not God, this he cannot handle. He has much bigger problems if God is not sovereign. But then the tension in the drama is resolved. John's angst is relieved. He's told by one of the elders to weep no more. And why? Because one is found. One is found who is worthy to open the scroll. One is found who is worthy to break the seals. And who is it? The elder says it is the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. So what does this mean? The Lion of Judah and the Root of David? Well, the Lion of Judah is a reference to Genesis 49.9. This is where... This is towards the end of the book. Just prior to his death, the patriarch Jacob gathers all his sons together and he bestows a blessing on each of his sons. And the blessing given to his fourth son, Judah, is that he would be the ruler of God's people. His descendants would be king. Now this is really odd because Judah was not the oldest. That was Reuben. And Judah was not even Jacob's favorite son. That was Joseph. And his most successful son was Joseph, who was actually the ruler of of Egypt. But this blessing goes through Judah. And we see this blessing fulfilled, at least in part, in King David, who is a descendant of Judah. And we see the Davidic covenant that God made with King David that promised David that he would have a descendant on the throne forever. Forever there would be a descendant on the throne of David. And this is ultimately fulfilled by David's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was of the tribe of Judah, who was a descendant of King David. The next term that's describing here is the root of David, or the root of Jesse, who is David's father. This is a reference to Isaiah chapter 11. We, we looked at a couple of weeks ago during our Advent readings, and this is a messianic prophecy. And the passage in Isaiah talks about the root of Jesse, David's father and descendant of Judah, being filled with the Holy Spirit and being the righteous judge who would defend the meek and exact judgment or exacting judgment on all evil. And this too is a prophecy fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the elder indicates that the only one who is worthy to open the scroll is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in particular, he is emphasizing this line of Judah and root of David. He's, he's, he's emphasizing Christ's royal authority, Christ's royal power as the line of Judah, as the righteous judge executing justice on all of creation as the, as the root of David. But in verse 6, in verse 6, when, when John looks, he doesn't see a lion. Rather, what does he see? Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, what does he see? Well, verse 6 tells us he sees a lamb. A lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So this image of a lamb that was slain, this is a reference to what Hal read for us earlier, Isaiah chapter 53, another well-known messianic passage. And here the, the Messiah is described as the suffering servant. He is described as a lamb, a lamb slain for the sins of his people. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed 
for our iniquities. And this is an image of Christ as the sacrificial lamb, atoning for the sins of his people. In the Lion of Judah and the Lamb who was slain, they show us two seemingly contradictory but essential and eternal aspects of Christ. Seemingly contradictory, this, this mighty, powerful lion and this slain lamb. See, Christ is the sovereign king. He is the just judge, and he is the atoning sacrifice to redeem his people. Notice also in verse 6, it says, Christ is described as a lamb with seven horns. Again, we, we don't want to think of this literally. This is, this is symbolic. Seven eyes and seven horns on a slain lamb. That, that would be a grotesque image to even think about. But all these elements, they're symbolic. And the horns represent strength and power of the animal. And again, the number of seven is symbolic, meaning fullness, completeness. So the seven horns signify ultimate, ultimate strength in this slain lamb. Unlimited strength in the slain lamb. And this is completely counterintuitive, is it not? We don't think of a sacrificial lamb as being powerful. We think of a sacrificial lamb as being weak, as being helpless, as being a victim. And my friends, it's tempting for us to think of Christ this way. And sadly, many churches on Good Friday will present Christ as this victim, as this people will feel sorry for Christ. And they'll look at him, he's so loving, he's so kind, and, and, and look at what these mean people did to him. Poor Jesus. Not so. Not so. Not poor Jesus. Jesus is the king of the universe, even hanging on that cross. But here's the irony that we see here. The sevenfold strength is not described in the Lion of Judah. Right? That's where you'd expect to see Jesus and his strength in the lion. But rather, it's described in the sacrificial lamb that was slain. And what this is saying is that Jesus displays his greatest strength at the point where he appears to be the weakness. Let me say that again. Jesus displays his greatest strength at the point where he appears to be at his weakest. And this is because on the cross, there is a paradox that is solved. So what is, what is this paradox? Well, it's a paradox of how God can be perfectly holy, perfectly just, but also be perfectly loving and perfectly merciful. How is this paradox resolved? You see, if God was only just, perfectly just, he would punish sinners to the exact appropriate amount, not one ounce more, not one ounce less, than that their sins deserve. But the problem is, the problem is every single one of us who has ever lived, other than Jesus himself, Every single one of us would justly be condemned, eternally condemned, eternally banished from the favorable presence of God to the term, to torments of hell. My friends, fair is hell. I often talk about people say, well, that's not fair. You don't want fair. Fair is hell. That's what fair is. So if God was perfectly just, we would all be in hell. Conversely, if God wasn't perfectly just, wasn't perfectly holy, if God was only a God of love and mercy, and this is what a, a, a lot of our, our liberal uh, Christian friends will say, that God is only love, only mercy. He would simply forgive everyone. He would ignore wickedness. He'd have no regard for justice. And do we want this? Do we really want this? I mean, think about a parent. What happens when a parent spoils their child, gives them everything they want, doesn't hold them accountable for bad behavior? What happens? You get more bad behavior. And can you imagine how evil humanity would be if God was not a God of justice? 
and not a God of holiness, and he excused, and he simply forgave every and all form of evil and wickedness? Would we really want this? Would we want, really want to live in a universe where there was no justice? Where there was no holiness? When everyone did what was right in their own eyes? It sounds utterly horrible. Think back in the, the book of Judges. That's how it was then. That's, do we really want a universe that is not just? So we have this apparent paradox between God's justice and his mercy. And we see the answer to this paradox in this vision. The Lion of Judah, who is the Lamb who was slain, he solves the paradox. Because in Christ, God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In this vision of the Lion and the Lamb, we see a beautiful picture of the gospel. We see a beautiful picture of the gospel in the eternal character of Jesus Christ. Christ is perfectly just. He doesn't lower his standards. He never makes peace with sin. He never winks at sin. Sin is fully and completely punished as it deserves to the fullest extent of his holiness. But here's the resolution to the paradox. And here's the wonderfully good news of the gospel. God does not punish this sin in the sinner, but rather he punishes it in himself. He doesn't punish it in the sinner. He punishes it in himself. Christ bears the punishment. Christ bears the wrath of God in our place. So for the person who's united to Christ by faith, his sin is atoned for, not in himself, but in the lamb who was slain. And my friends, this is the good news. This is the good news of the gospel. And, and we will never cease to be amazed by this grace. We will never cease praising him, praising him forever for this grace. And every sermon I preach, I preach the gospel. Why? Because this is the grace. This is, this is what we will be marveling at for all eternity. My friends, if you tire of the gospel, if you're bored of the gospel, if you're sleeping through the gospel, you'll be bored of eternity. You'll be bored of heaven because the gospel drives us to praise. It drives us to praise God. And that's what we'll be doing for all eternity. And if you don't like praising God, you will not like heaven. The most merciful thing God can do for you if you're bored of worshiping is to send you to hell. That is the most merciful thing. And that's something we need to check our hearts. Because if we're not excited about what we read here, if we're not excited, then we're not his. That's all I can say. If we're not excited, we are not his. And if you're bored, if you're sleeping through this, you need to ask, do I really belong to the Lord? If you tire of the gospel, you will tire of heaven. In verse 7, John sees the lamb take the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated at the throne. And then in verse 8, look at the, the immediate reaction of the living creatures and the 24 elders when the lamb takes the scrolls. What do they do? They fall down in worship. They worship the lamb. And this worship, this is another indication of the divinity of the lamb. This is another indication of the divinity of Christ. See, worship cannot be given to a creature. Elsewhere in Revelation, John tries to fall down and worship one of the angels, and the angel sharply rebukes him. Worship God alone. See, this is idolatry. Idolatry is, is a wicked sin. So this is, worship is given to God alone. So the Lamb is divine. The Lamb is God. Again in verse 8, it says that each of them is holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, incense which is the prayer of the saints. And this is where we get that image that we'll be on a cloud playing a harp. No, that's not what it is at all. The harps here represent worship, worship and praise and song, just like we were just doing before. Worship and praising as we're singing diadem and singing this royal coronation. That's what we will be doing for all eternity, singing 
And that's what this is an indication, that the singing. Notice that the worship and the prayers go together here. Prayer is, is communion with God. Prayer is worship. See, prayer is not just simply asking God for things. It's not just petitioning, you know, I, I need the, you know, safety in traveling. You know, you know, Lord, please provide. No, it is, it is communion with God. We glorify God through our prayers. And then verse 9, we're told, look at this. It says, and they sang a new song. This is wonderful. They sang a new song. What is this new song? Well, the rest of verse 9 and 10 give us this new song. But we want to compare this new song to an old song. What is the old song? Well, look at the old song that the angels sang in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. What do they sing? They sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. This is the old song. So what are they, what are they praising in the old song? They're praising God's holiness. They're praising God's eternity, who was and is to come. See, my friends, when we contemplate the attributes of God, it naturally drives us to worship him. True believers can do no other. So why do we study theology? Why, why, do, we, why do we spend so much time in theology? Is it just to get smart? No, not at all. We study theology to learn about God, to worship God. I remember when I was in seminary, I had systematic theology with a guy named Douglas Kelly. Some of you may have heard him. One of the greatest living theologians we have. And oftentimes, as we're going through the attributes of God, we break down to praise. We, 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 it becomes a sermon. It becomes a worship service. You cannot study about the attributes of God without worshiping God. Verse, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. And here, what they're doing is they're worshiping God as creator, as is appropriate, as which we will do. But that's the old song. Notice the new song. In five, chapter 5, verse 9, they're praising the Lamb not as creator, but they're praising him as redeemer. You see the new song? We're going from praising him as creator, which he deserves and which we will do, to praising him as redeemer. Look at what it says. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. See, my friend, God does deserve our praise because of his holy character. He deserves our praise because he is our creator. But look at how much more glory he deserves and how much more glory he receives because he is our redeemer. Redemption brings God glory. See, we often think that, that, that God's main purpose in saving us is so we can go to heaven. And that's great, and we love that. But that's just a side benefit. That, that's just a byproduct. The main purpose why Jesus saves us is for his own glory. See, oftentimes we think of God as this, this pathetic little person saying, you know, I want to save you. Please call me. I want, to, I want to come to your heart and waiting for us to be sovereign. That's not it at all. He is sovereign. He is mighty. And he is glorified when we are saved. He is glorified by our redemption. And in this verse, I, I, I'm just going to amaze at this. It, look at the scope of redemption that we see in this verse. I mean, it was amazing enough, think of the Old Testament, that God would actually save one people. One nation, nation Israel. No nation, no person deserves diverse saving. No one deserves his grace. But now, look at this. Now, through the Lamb, redemption is not only open to the physical descendants of Abraham, that is the nation of Israel, but it is open to his spiritual descendants. And redemption now is open to every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Isn't that amazing? 
What a beautiful tapestry God is weaving together with different people from all over the world, all praising Him. Again, we praise God for this amazing picture we're given. And my friends, not only are we saved, but we are commissioned. We are commissioned to be a kingdom of priests. And what does this mean? It means that each one of us has direct access, personal access through Christ to God. See, in the Old Testament, you had to go through a human priest. You couldn't go directly to God. You try going directly to God, you would be killed. We heard the story of Usa when he touched the, the ark, and he was immediately killed. That's what happens when an unholy person comes unmediated into the presence of God. But now, because each one of us is a priest, each one of us goes through Christ, we have direct access to Jesus Christ. Not only that, we are destined to reign with him as rulers of this of this kingdom. I mean, this, this again, this is amazing. Even, even the most lowly of us, even the most unimpressed of us, will be kings of the creation, reigning alongside of all other Christians, alongside of Christ himself. That is what is promised here. Again, praising God. Praising God. And my friends, this is nothing short of amazing. And if we just stop and think about the total extravagance of the promises, it would, it would absolutely just blow our minds away. But then in verses 11 through 14, the vision expands. And it gives us a glimpse of the, the sheer magnitude of this reality, the sheer magnitude of the worship that plague takes place in the throne room of heaven. Look at verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. My friends, a myriad is 10,000. So think 10,000 times 10,000. That's hundreds of millions. But for all practicality, it is a number so large that it's uncountable. And this is telling us that this verse is that the number of the redeemed worshiping the Lord is uncountable. It is that immense. I mean, it's just amazing. We, we, we tend to think, I mean, we, we look around at a small church, there's, you know, what, maybe, maybe 30, 40 of us here. We think about that. We, we, we even look at how, how the, the church is compromised. We wonder, is there that many Christians around? Is it, is it going to be a few that are saved? This is telling us it's going to be uncountable. And, and, and it, can we just catch a smidge of the magnitude of this worship? Again, it's hard to, to realize when, we're, we're, when it's just so, so small of us in a small church to, to realize. I remember when we went to, to General Assembly, and I really enjoyed this. We, there were about 3,000 of us there, and we're singing the worship in there and just hearing all the voices. And sometimes it's, it's nice. I mean, I, I love being in a small church because you get to know everyone. But sometimes when you're in a big church and you hear the singing. I remember when we went to the Sing Conference. Conference and the song that we're going to be singing after this sermon, uh, we sang. Nathan and Lynn and I were there when, when they actually when they recorded it, and there were probably about fifteen thousand of us singing this song that we're going to be singing, and it's just amazing. And sometimes we we lose sight of that, but really, this is not going to be just worldwide. It's going to be cosmos wide. Look at verse thirteen. It says that the worship extends to the entire creation. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. See, Christ's sovereignty here is knowledge by every single created thing. Everything and everyone that God has created will eventually acknowledge his sovereignty. Even the damned souls in hell will grudgingly, involuntarily admit that he is sovereign. In verse 14, the living creatures representing the created realm shout, Amen, it is true. 
But look at the elders. They're the ones who represent the church. They're the ones who represent the redeemed. They're the ones who represent us. Those who have personally experienced this renewing grace of the gospel have been born again. And verse 24 tells us that the elders fell down and worshipped. So my friends, that is what we were meant to do. We are meant to worship Christ. If you are in Christ, you are meant to worship. That is the response to this vision. We can do no other. So what does this all mean? Let me tie it all together. What is our takeaway from these two chapters, from this glorious vision? What, how are we supposed to respond? Well, my, my application for every sermon that I preach, if you're an unbeliever, if this bores you, you have no concern for this, like I said, this should de- definitely get your attention if you have no concern for this. But if you are an unbeliever, that can change now. Call out to the Lord. Call upon, Scripture says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call upon him. Say, Lord, I want to believe. I want to have that excitement. Give it to me. And he will answer that prayer. That is the, if there's anyone here who is not a believer, that is your only application of every sermon that you ever hear. But if you're a believer, if you're a believer, I want us to see Christ in this passage. I want to see Christ from a different perspective. See, it's so easy for our faith to go, grow old. We might have been walking with the Lord for 50, 60, 70 years, whatever it is. It's easy for us to fall into a rut. Yeah, I'm saved. Yes, I believe Jesus. Yeah, I, I believe that for years. It's familiar. And you've lost the wonder. My friends, this vision brings back the wonder. This vision shows us reality. Reality is going on at this very moment, spiritual reality. Seeing this vision that Christ, our Jesus, our Savior, is the one worthy, the only one who is worthy to execute God's ultimate and final decree concerning all creation. He is the secret of everything. Literally the secret of everything. And my friends, eventually all creation will acknowledge his reality, even if it is unwillingly. But here's the the benefit we have. If we are his if we have been born again by his Holy Spirit, we have the privilege to voluntarily worship him now. All creation will worship him at one time, either voluntary or involuntary, but we have the privilege to worship him now. My friends, there is no higher, there is no more joyous calling than this. This is what we were meant to do. This is what we were created to do. And this is what we will do for all eternity. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for this vision. And Father, we pray that you will fill us with the excitement. Help us to understand what we just read. It is so easy for us to be so dull and just to to continue to go along and not realize that the Lamb is worthy. The Lamb is worthy. The Lamb who was slain so that we can participate. Father, may we never, ever, ever be bored of this fact. May we always be in wonder. May we always be falling down and worshiping you. It is for your glory that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.